this evening service, we use a teaching tool uh, that was uh, written uh, many hundreds of years ago during the European Reformations. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, we'll read this question and answer. This one is about uh, Jesus Christ's return. And I'll read the question. I'll invite you as a congregation to answer with the response. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? The scripture verse that uh, we'll be walking through together in relation to this, uh, this teaching in the catechism is Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 25. And uh, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to follow along. Also, will be on the screens uh, behind me. Jesus is teaching in this chapter, and he says these words at verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the title for this very short evening Advent series that I'll be uh, leading us through this year is called uh, December to Remember, A December to Remember, and tonight is A December to Remember Christ's Return. Often this time of year, we uh, get very focused on, and naturally so, on leading up to Christmas and celebrating uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, His coming into the world, His incarnation. And this is a wonderful thing for us to do, an important thing for us to do as Christians, to remember and celebrate and mark that occasion, uh, Jesus leaving heaven, taking on earthly uh, flesh, and, uh, and being born into this world as our Savior. But also in the Advent season and time, it's important for us to remember a theme that we see in the teaching tonight, and it's also unambiguous throughout the New Testament. In the Gospels and in the letters of Paul and Peter and John and in Revelation, we have this unambiguous, clear teaching and theme that Jesus Christ will come again. His second coming, as sometimes we hear it uh, referred to uh, in language around us. And so tonight I'd like us to consider in the context of Luke chapter 21, uh, these uh, six verses, five verses that we read, uh, verses 25 to 28, four very brief aspects of understanding a December to remember Christ's return. And the first one is, it's of cosmic consequence. Secondly, visible, bodily, final, and unalterable. Maybe that's a whole night in itself. Thirdly, 
living implications. Oh, we got one and two. Okay, two sets of two. And then finally, uh, theological effect. Can we do this in 10 minutes, 12 minutes? We're going to try. So we learn in this passage in verse 25 that the second coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus again, the coming of the Son of Man will be of cosmic consequence. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on earth nations will be in anguish. We talk about the sea, we hear, we hear what's coming on the world, we hear heavenly bodies being shaken. And of course this is a, a very common theme in the Old Testament, in Joel we hear it, in Isaiah that there will one day be a day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is coming, and this will not be just a sliver of inconsequential history that only some will see or that will only affect maybe certain parts of the world of, or of our lives. But from the Old Testament on right now into the New Testament, there is this promise and this understanding and this truth that time as we know it now will end and be finished, that history will have a, have a, have a stop. And we learn here in Luke that the cosmic, uh, that, the cosmic uh, that the return of Christ will not be quiet or small but, or ineffectual, but will have a reverberation all the way through God's creation fully. And we see this in Romans chapter 8 and verse 22. We see the principle in the Paul teaching about creation itself. He writes these words in Romans 8:22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There is this sense that even creation itself is longing to be liberated, transformed, that creation now is groaning, as it were, creaking in a sense, under the weight of sin and death, under the effects of the fall. And here we have this promise of cosmic consequence that Jesus Christ will himself return. And we imagine here Romans 8 and 22 and 23 of that groaning ceasing of sin and evil being over, the dis, the, uh, of, of those who are under the weight of sin and death being, that, that, that time being over, that, that distress coming to an end. And so we see this fulfillment that will sweep right across creation and all people, that God is not finished with all that he's made. That the Christ will return and every single molecule will be affected by his coming. And that's meant to give us a certain take, I think, on how we live and how we see the world around us, uh, a world that is groaning under the weight of sin, but a world also to which Christ himself, uh, in the eschaton, shall return, and nothing will be left out. So of conso cosmic consequence. And number two, we learn in, the, in these verses that the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming, will be visible, bodily, final, and unalterable. That is such a mouthful. I thought, should I cut that down? No, no, I can't cut it down. This is too clear. Verse 27, at that time they will see the Son of Man. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud. 
with power and great glory. It's such a temptation. It's so easy for us to, I said this morning, I might have said this morning, to sentimentalize Christmas, to enter this whole thing into the emotions of, of feeling good and a white Christmas and, and, and all of those musical things that might, no offense on music, but musical things that might make us feel a certain way, all of which are really important and good and joyful, of course. But we mustn't forget that this passage teaches us that Jesus will come again in not simply, not some, some ethereal or, 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 or cloudy or vague kind of way. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, we, we see as much said as Jesus ascended, it says he, he, will, he, he will return in the same way that he ascended. That is, there will be a day, the Bible teaches us, that Jesus Christ himself will return uh, from the heavens, from, from the same way he came, visible by all, by all bodily, not, not a ghost or a or, 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 or form of Jesus Christ, but he'll come bodily with his wounds. This coming will be, uh, uh, what is on that? Sorry. It'll be final and unalterable. And we see this promise in Daniel chapter 7, which I want to quickly go to, where we hear about the Son of Man and the nature of his return. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13, before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations, peoples, and every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So at Christmas, we're, we're, we're meant to long for this. We're meant to know that there will be a day when Jesus Christ himself shall come. We will see him. It will be final. He will come with his eternal dominion. And history as we, as we know it, all will see that that time is finished. I can't remember what, what carol it was, but I wrote it down. <laughs> Maybe you can help me. It says, and our eyes at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For that child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. That message of Christmas includes not only the first coming of Jesus as the vulnerable incarnate baby child who is our Savior, who will save us from our sins, but it includes the one full of glory and wonder and truth, once in Royal David City, and power, uh, who will come again as uh, the Son of Man, the Son of God. So of cosmic consequence, visible and bodily. And then we learn also in this passage from Luke about living implications for the truth of his return. And we see at that time... Uh, the Son of Man will come with great power and glory. And then in verse 28, when we see these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads. <laughs> now we might think, wow, the eternal Son of God coming back to earth. We, that might be kind of terrifying, I don't know, scary. 
Uh, maybe we should run. Maybe we should be afraid. And uh, I think in some ways, because Christ, the Bible teaches us, comes back as our judge, and we shall uh, answer to him. <laughs> uh, we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that uh, all of life will be based on whether or not it has its foundation on Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, we, we see that Christ will be our judge, and there is a judgment seat of Christ, His Him returning. But we see in Galatians chapter 3 that, 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 that Jesus Himself bears the curse of our sin. In, in a sense, I think we read in the New Testament uh, that the judge will, in a sense, be judged in our place, which is a wonderful gospel truth. But as we think about the living implications of Jesus returning in the clouds, we, our first implication might be, you know, uh, concern, fear, worry, afraid. But the Bible instead teaches those who follow Jesus, who have surrendered to Him as their Savior, instead the Bible teaches Christians, that we ought to have confidence for that day, that we ought to live in hope for that day, not heads bowed low or under our desks or in our bunkers, but it says, stand up and, and lift up your heads. Look up. That the, the living implication for Christians at the second coming of Jesus is that it ought to be something that we are hopeful for that we are looking for, not afraid of, but heads raised up. And we see in the Gospels, teaching in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, teaching uh, as the Christian, what must one do in this time when we are looking for the return of Jesus? We see again and again that we must be waiting, that we must be watching, that we must be ready. There's a promise for those who Follow Jesus. There's a promise for the Christian um, about what God is doing in his return and how that will operate for us. And we see that promise all through the New Testament, but we also see it in, we see it as well just in one verse, Galatians, Ephesians. Oh, goodness. Galatians, Ephesians. Philippians. Where's Philippians? There we go. Philippians uh, chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to this. We are to be confident of being confident of this, says Paul. He's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until when? Until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we're not meant as Christians, and we think about the second coming of Jesus, to be afraid or to be in a place of gloominess as we see some uh, movies, I won't mention their names, that instigate this kind of fear and gloom around the coming of Jesus, there is meant to be instead a hopefulness in us that Christ is coming and we must look up and not down. And finally, we learn in these verses about the return of Jesus, of cosmic consequence, visible bodily, living implications, hopefulness, not gloom, confidence and trust, not fear, because of what Christ has done for us, taking the curse of sin 
on himself for us. Because of this, we, the final thing we learn is they sh- there will be a theological effect to his return. And we see that at the end of verse 28. Uh, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. <laughs> There's the theological effect. I think it's happening in the re- second coming of Jesus. Your redemption is drawing near. And of course, in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 1 and 2, in the coming of the Christmas story of Jesus, there's a great emphasis on God's redeeming work in history, on God's redemption, on the promises of God being fulfilled in this Messiah, of His mercy and His faithfulness coming to fruition. And here are this sense of, of redemption is a theme we see all throughout Luke and also all throughout the New Testament. This is the main biblical category for the saving work of Jesus Christ. His redemption, His atonement, the fact that He dies in our place as a substitute, His deliverance. And that Old Testament word literally means to be loosed, to be released by some form of payment. And that's that overarching biblical category that Jesus has, has redeemed us, that His work leads to our redemption. And yet, of course, we're, we're living in this strange time between his, his death and his resurrection and the, and, the, and, the, and the bring into being of his church through the power of the Holy Spirit and his return. And so we're waiting in a way. We're still in this place where we feel the effects of sin. We, we, we don't do what we always want to do. We see sin and death at work around us. Sometimes we are allured by and drawn down paths we know that are not going to lead to life or human flourishing or more love for God. And so we're in this strange in-between time of waiting. And Luke, Jesus is giving us the promise here to remember that our redemption shall one day be fully consummated and fully known. It's accomplished, but we're still waiting for its full effect. John Murray says in his book, Redemption accomplished and applied. The redemption is the work of Christ on our behalf whereby he purchases and ransoms us by, in the price of his own life. Um, can't read my own writing. Uh, making possible our deliverance from bondage and condemnation from sin. That is accomplished, of course. He's paid a debt that that he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. And all of that work is done, yet we don't always feel its effects, do we? And the promise here in the second coming of Jesus is that, is that one day that the full effect of that redemption shall be, shall be known, that the power of sin and evil will be finished, will be burned out, will be no longer, will be like Unwatered poinsettias. These are totally watered, but picture a flower, just gone. No power left to it. And we will see Jesus, and the only light will be the light of Christ for us in our lives. And so this passage, just as we come to an end here, is an important passage for all of us, I think, to consider. Maybe, maybe for you this is strange news, and you're here or listening online, and it's kind of like you're just checking out Christianity, and uh, wow, here you come to a teaching on Jesus coming again in the clouds, kind of a strange one. And in some ways, that should be, if you don't call yourself a Christian, if you maybe are just checking out Christianity, 
in some ways, I think that's meant to give us a little rub, a little, a little push maybe. Because the truth is the one who, who made us and loved us and created this world with beauty and meaning will come back. And, and, and there'll be this moment of truth and reality that will hit every single one of us, which is that life on this earth is without true and deep meaning and eternal purpose if we do not have union with our Creator, with the one who made us and loved us. And so there'll be, there'll be a moment of truth there for, for everyone to consider. And I would invite you to keep digging deeper into these claims as you think about time and history and meaning and Christmas and Advent. Be thinking about what it means for the end of history and the coming, the second coming of Jesus in grace and in truth. And as we just close off this time, maybe you call yourself or you've already accepted the claims of Jesus. You've surrendered him. You might see this as something you've heard about many times. May I just encourage us as we consider the second coming of Christ that until that time, we are called to live in hope. We're called to live in a state of readiness, Matthew 24. We're called to live in hope, Titus chapter 2. We're called to be speaking in our lives the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be sharing the good news until his return, 2 Peter 3, 9. And we're called to strive by the, the help of the community of Christians and the word and the spirit. We're, we're, we're called to strive for holy and blameless living. You know, it's... Uh, it's a funny thing sometimes our prayer life. We're going into a prayer service just now in a few minutes. And I hope people are able to stick around for that. But did you know that the Bible itself uh, ends in a prayer? And it ends in a prayer for what? The return of Jesus. A December to remember his return. At the end of Revelation, it says... Amen. And come, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, thank you so very much for the promises we hear in the Scripture. Some of them touch us outright and kind of make sense right away. Other ones really challenge our thinking because we're so certain about the things we can touch and measure scientifically in our age and often doubtful about things that are truer but unseen. And so grant, Lord, I pray this Advent and Christmas season that you might lead all of us in whatever place of our spiritual pilgrimage we are on, that you might lead us deeper into the love of Jesus Christ, uh, who will return. Grant that our trust and hope may forever be in him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.